With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me Mike DeBernardis. Mike is a fan favorite on the FCPA Compliance Report, and he and I take a deep dive into the Department of Justice's 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the DOJ and SEC second edition to the FCPA Resources Guide. Every compliance practitioner will take away a key component of both documents in this podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. You're in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat. That's because I have Mike DeBernardis back with me, uh, not only one of my favorites, but a fan favorite of the FCPA Compliance Report. So, Mike, first of all, uh, welcome and thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Uh, well, thanks for having me back, Tom. It's always fun to come on and talk to you. Mike, uh, we're going to take up two extraordinarily significant pieces of information released by the Department of Justice and SEC literally over the past six weeks. We're going to start with the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs released June 1, and then the FCPA Resource Guide second edition, uh, which was released July 2. If maybe we could start with the uh, 2020 updates, if there were sort of a few key themes that you saw, uh, either evolutionary themes or something that pointed us perhaps in a new direction, what might those have been? So I guess starting with a general comment, you know, in my view, many, many of the changes made throughout the, the 2020 update uh, were, were either what I would categorize as minor changes or uh, changes that, that sort of make, made explicit what was already expected or, or done. And, and so, for example, with respect to, to management of third parties, the, the new guidance, the updated guidance now explicitly states that prosecutors should look to uh, to see whether the the company is continuously monitoring its third parties. That's really been a best practice for a while now, and something that, if you look at uh, DOJ enforcement actions, SEC enforcement actions, you'll see that 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 prosecutors were already uh, looking into those issues and, and criticizing companies if they did not continuously monitor. Uh, similarly, with with respect to, um, you know, there's a, there's an addition in there about uh, making sure that prosecutors look to see whether the company has uh, determined that there was a valid business rationale for engaging a third party. Again, that that's that's sort of best practice. There there are other changes though that I think uh, that were maybe subtle but but more meaningful. You know, with respect to training. There's a change made to indicate that prosecutors should look uh, to see whether participants in training have the ability to ask questions. And, uh, you know, that, that might seem minor, but there's a lot of companies these days uh, that we're seeing that are relying heavily on 
uh, totally automated sort of online uh, compliance training, sort of you know click through exercises, uh, and this may signal that that that's you know that 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 alone may not be sufficient in terms of training. Um, to, to to me, the the biggest change and perhaps perhaps the most meaningful long term change uh, is is this emphasis that's been put on data and the the compliance department's access to and ability to use data. Uh, and it, it comes up in a number of places actually in the in the update. I mean most notice, noticeably when discussing um, you know whether the the compliance program has uh, appropriate resources, uh, they they've added this this series of questions regarding whether the compliance team has has access to uh, relevant sources of data to sort of allow for for you know on the fly monitoring of the compliance program, and then in other places as well, uh, you know they, they they talk about for instance uh, in discussing the policies and procedures, you know does the company track access to the policies and procedures to understand which ones employees are actually looking at, and other ways where uh, there's there is slowly coming to be an expectation that compliance programs, particularly one, you know, more sophisticated compliance programs, uh, are utilizing da data in a similar way that their counterparts on the business side might be using data. And, and I think that's, that's a potentially really sig significant uh, change. And I think we're at the early stages of it for, for, for purposes of compliance programs. But it's, a, it's a, the beginning of what I, what I consider to be a significant trend. Mike, um, in your practice, I would assume that you are called in uh, either after something's happened or perhaps uh, if a company thinks something has happened. Would you use a document, would you use the evaluations both or as a benchmark or would you use this uh, to test a company's compliance program or would you use this uh, perhaps uh, to help build out or remediate parts of a compliance program that didn't meet the government's expectations or would you use it in a different way? I think I would use it in both ways, and and you know I've I've truthfully already had occasion to use uh, this document, and a client recently asked uh, for us to conduct a uh, really an assessment of their compliance program. Uh, it, uh, this was a um, you know preventative measure wanted to 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 do a, a regular sort of audit of their compliance program, uh, and and this guidance, the updated version, uh, was one of the the. Sort of tools we use to measure their their uh, compliance program against, and I think that's where that's where it can be really really valuable when when a company is uh, trying to take a holistic view of their compliance program. This provides a good place, a, a good benchmark, if you will, uh, to make sure they sort of have have addressed all of the areas that a prosecutor might consider. Like one of the things that uh, that I I felt like I've observed over perhaps ten years or so has been the evolution of the Department of Justice in putting out uh, what they believe to be best practices sort of as far back as the original FCPA guide. And we used to say, well, you have to read the tea leaves. Uh, and But I really think the DOJ communicates what they want. They communicate it via enforcement action. They communicate it via speeches. But it seems like over the past few years, they've given us more concrete or at least direct communications, particularly starting with the uh, original evaluation released in February of 2017. Would you find that to be a fair assessment or do you see it perhaps in a different way since you're, I would say, more on the front lines? No, 
I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, there has been, uh, and there might be a recency bias here since we, we've just received, as you noted, two really pretty significant pieces of guidance coming out of the DOJ in the last, last couple of months. But, uh, you know, I, I, over the last few years, uh, there, there appears to be more of an effort to, uh, you know, to, to put practices, you know, into written form in, in form of policies. You know, we had the, 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 FC, the corporate enforcement program, the anti-piling on policy, sort of changes uh, with respect to how monitors are selected. And I think it's an effort at, at transparency in, in the, in the uh, practice of the DOJ. And I think uh, part of it is really uh, taking time to put in writing what had already been done. Uh, because, you know, I think the, 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 that effort at transparency um, can be valuable for the DOJ, especially as it is trying to, you know, partner with, with companies and really engage and, and get cooperation from companies. Uh, that, that transparency can be really important. And these documents are really important to, to that end. Mike, do you find that when you sit across from the Department of Justice, if you happen to reference, happen to reference some, someone who's found themselves in an enforcement action, that you can use a document like the evaluation as a part of your presentation to at least argue to the department why a, a declination should be granted, a penalty should be lessened, or how your client has either met the uh, met the best practices or remediated to best practices. Is that a, a way you could use this document? Yeah, look, it's always nice to be able to sort of use the, the DOJ's own, uh, own documents, own words in a presentation to them. Uh, um, that is, it, it puts it in a framework that you know that they both understand and uh, expect. And so that's, that is a, a useful use of this. Now, whether they agree on the actual conclusions you're drawing with respect to each of these elements, that's a, that's a different story. Uh, but it, it certainly helps create a framework for that discussion. Mike, most of the folks I work with tend to be compliance professionals. So they're going to view the evaluation as, uh, if not gospel, something that the, they really believe... Um, is useful for compliance, but you're talking to general counsels, you're talking to CEOs. Uh, when you make a presentation to to a non-compliance group, are you able to use the evaluation as a, a strong guide for what you believe the DOJ wants to see? I actually think uh, this this type of document can be even more useful in those conversations and conversations with with high-level senior management and and conversations with general counsels. I mean, the reason is that you're, you have an opportunity at that point to uh, show them something concrete, right? I think a lot of compliance professionals already understand a lot of these concepts, and they understand why they're important in terms of an effective compliance program. It's very helpful to be able to say to a CEO, you know, you should do this because not only because it's best practice, not only because, you know, in our experience, it's effective at, at preventing misconduct or detecting misconduct, but importantly, because the Department of Justice has, has in this written document, explicitly stated that they expect you to do it. And I think when you're able to sort of show them the paper, uh, that can be very helpful. Mike, I was really intrigued uh, in one of your answers. You tied the evolution of the DOJ transparency on compliance programs to a series of other announcements we've had. You mentioned the Benkowski memo, certainly the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, do you see all of these releases as kind of tied together in a way to give 
companies the information they might need to try to create a program, yet also communicate the DOJ's expectations and then even the, the penalties of an enforcement action does arise? You know, whether, whether they are all part of a singular uh, strategic decision by the DOJ to be more transparent, I, I, I don't know. I, I certainly view them uh, together in the sense that they offer companies uh, who, are, who are trying to comply and, and trying to set up a, a, a program you know, based on their risks. Uh, they offer an insight into what the, what the Department of Justice is looking for, uh, what it considers to be important, um, and how it might react in certain situations. Uh, and so I, I think from that sense, to, to me, they all sort of further the same goal, and, and they're all sort of equally helpful in, in that analysis and those discussions with clients. Mike, if we could now turn to the FCPA Resource Guide, second edition. Um, when this uh, document was originally released, I, I was probably one of the biggest to crow that this was the single most important one-volume FCPA resource. It had the law. It had uh, declinations. It had the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. It had the DOJ interpretations of uh, their positions. They had some case law in there. Um, I, I, feel, I feel the same way now after the second edition, but I guess the, the th- one of the themes I, got, I felt was that much of the case law or some of the interpretations of cases the DOJ gave their interpretation. And you and I might disagree. Certainly others have disagreed. And the more I thought about it, though, even that's a value. If I know, if I could tell a client, this is what you're up against. This is what the DOJ is going to say. Is, is that a fair assessment as well? Or, or once again, you sitting on the front lines, do you see it a little bit differently? No, I, I see it exactly the same. And, and you know, t- to your point, I, I don't think you were alone in, in, in sort of recognizing the 2012 uh, version of this as being a very important document. It was one that for years clients would point to. And I, you know, one of those, those documents that you when you're in a client's office, you often saw it as though they were, you know, reading it and paying attention to it. Uh, I I will say, I think it became less important as years went on because it became at a date. Uh, And that's why I think that this update was really important um, because there was, you know, elements, a lot has happened in the, the eight, plus years since that initial uh, document was released. And a lot has happened to uh, change, uh, um, to really alter what was in the document. So it had become less important. So this was, this was really uh, a necessary step. Um, but but to, to your point, um, the, the DOJ's interpretation um, is, is helpful whether I agree with it or not. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's often helpful in, in uh, discussions with clients. Uh, you know, you can use Hoskins and, and the, the, the DOJ's interpretation of the Hoskins decision and, and the, the status of foreign agents as a good example. You might have a client who says, well, hey, you know, in, in Hoskins, the Second Circuit decided um, that, that, you know, conspiracy and, and aiding and abetting uh, alone could not, you know, bring a foreign agent into the, the scope of the FCPA. Um, and, and it's helpful to be able to point to a document like this and say, that, that's true. And, and, you know, in the Second Circuit, that's true. Uh, the DOJ is still taking the position um, that 
the scope is a little broader, and they're pointing to, to cases in other, other circuits um, that, that perhaps conflict with, with the Hoskins decision. Uh, and so it, it, it is, you know, again, the, the arguments are we can make at, at the court or with the DOJ itself um, for discussions with the clients. It's, it's really helpful to sort of get insight into how the DOJ might be thinking or interpreting certain decisions. Mike, if I could ask, uh, what were some of the two or three or however many top highlights from you for, uh, for you from the second edition? You know, one, one that's really pretty small and, and, and may not even been noticed um, was uh, with respect to the statute of limitations. Uh, you know, I'd had, I'd had conversations over the years um, that, that the, the way that the, the 2012 guide had discussed the statute of limitations was incorrect, at least with respect to the accounting provisions. Um, and I was just, I, we had been surprised that uh, sort of uh, they had allowed it to go on this long, but, but it, this, this guy does uh, sort of make the, make the, take the position that the accounting provisions are, are technically securities fraud offenses and they're subject to a six-year statute of limitations, whereas the, the substantive FCPA anti-bribery violations um, would be subject to the, the catch-all five-year statute of limitations. So it's just a small uh, um, change, but uh, actually, you know, one that could actually be, be very meaningful and it's helpful to know uh, at the outset you know, how the DOJ is approaching the statute of limitations with respect to these cases. Um, I thought, you know, from a, <clears throat> obviously, as I mentioned, it was an important update. There's a lot, a lot has happened. And, and actually, you know, give credit where credit's due. I, I thought the, the resource guy did a really good job of trying to incorporate eight years worth of developments into this, into this document. Uh, and I, I think once again, now in its current edition is, is really can be a useful, uh, a useful guide for companies and, and for practitioners. Um, one of the, one of my, personal takeaways was the additional sort of guidance and focus on successor liability in, in the M&A context. Uh, and, and it actually, it parallels some, some of the changes made in the 2020 uh, um, update to the compliance guidance as well. Uh, you know, there, there's an understanding as there has been that pre-acquisition due diligence can be difficult and there's reasons um, uh, there's reasons that you might not be able to do it. Uh, and it really, this, the guide really puts, puts the emphasis on making sure you do effective post-acquisition integration and due diligence. Uh, and then it, I think, I think I took it as an encouragement for companies um, to, to, you know, under the corporate enforcement policy, if you have acquired an entity and you subsequently discover a, a misconduct, uh, to, to report it and, and try to take advantage of the, the potential benefits of the corporate enforcement policy. I, I thought it was interesting that the guidance, uh, the resource guide here said, um, you know, noted how few, um, few times that the DOJ has, has pursued uh, charges against the company related to um, the activities of, of its, um, you know, of a required entity. Uh, really trying to, I think, give some level of comfort to companies as they're going through what can be a, a difficult acquisition process. Of course, we had the, the what I'm going to call the new hallmark, which is a root cause analysis, but uh, that really ties into the point you made about the 2020 update to the evaluation, which is uh, root cause analysis is not new. 
Uh, it, they started talking about it as early as 2015. Of course, it was in the evaluation, and now they've they put it into uh, the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. Um, and then the the other thing that um, they this I guess would also go to your point of the the importance of this document may simply or one of the important things is it, it was updated, and so now we have a corporate enforcement policy detailed. Uh, we've got, uh, I really also appreciated your statute of limitations uh, critique because that's something that I think uh, really companies need to be aware of that they might be facing that as well. Yeah, I t- totally agree. And, and, you know, it's, we've, I've personally been involved in, in cases where we're, we're debating these issues and, and thinking about whether uh, a potential, you know, potentially discovered misconduct um, falls within the, the statute of limitations and have to you know, it, it can get down to, uh, as you might expect, you know, a, a matter of, of months or, or weeks. Uh, and so knowing whether the DOJ is going to take the view that it's five years or six years can be can be potentially very meaningful for companies to know. And, and you know, the, just just the, the root cause point you made is, is an excellent one because, um, you know, it's a little surprising going back and looking at the 2012 uh, resource guide again and, and you know, this this is something root cause analysis and sort of that's it's been a, that has been a sort of a, a mainstay in the expectation for the DOJ. They want you to understand what happened and why it happened, uh, and so it, it's natural now to see it as a as a hallmark of a, an effective compliance program. Mike, if I could maybe change the focus just a little bit, I've had the the opportunity to visit with uh, several partners, uh, several partners and lawyers at uh, Hughes Hubbard, and. Uh, what I wanted to ask is, I would have expected uh, prior COVID-19 when everyone was at the office, you know, you guys having a fairly robust debate internally about what some of these uh, changes meant, uh, how they should be interpreted, how they, how that you all might use them going forward. Are you still able to have those debates virtually or in the sort of post-COVID world? Uh, it, it's it's more complicated than it used to be, certainly, Tom. I, you know, we... we, we do our best with uh, with Zoom and and Blue Jeans and every other sort of technology that there is to have those discussions or just over email. But uh, you know, I think one of the realities that we're facing now is uh, in the in the old days, as I'll I'll frame it, it was just several months ago. But uh, you know, we would have all popped into one office and, and as this came out and had a 30, 40 minute discussion about uh, you know the the things that we found interesting. Uh, and it's just it, it's a little more difficult to do that. Um, and, and truthfully, it's, it's, uh, you know, part, part of the reason why we're, we're, we're late on our own, um, sort of advisory on this, uh, on this, uh, you know, uh, update because it, it takes a little longer to, to make sure everybody's views get, get put into to place and, and can be taken into consideration. Mike, there was an article today in the FCPA blog talking about, uh, no one thought 2020 would be as significant a year the FCPA, perhaps as it has been, we now had Airbus, uh, we've had Novartis, uh, we've got these two major releases of information, and uh, it just, the article really made me crystallize my thinking that he's right, this year may be one of the most significant, and you know, people like you and I may be unpacking, I may be unpacking this, you may be unpacking it, and you may be talking to your clients about things we learned about compliance programs and enforcement from this year uh, a lot more than we had thought. Would you have any thoughts on that one way or the other? 
No, I think that's that's uh, it's really an ex- excellent point. I mean, as, as the year started sort of slowly in terms of enforcement, um, you know, m- minus uh, the Airbus case, um, you know, there was a thought, especially as as the pandemic began to set in, set in that uh, this might be a slow year. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing is um, there really there's no longer there's no such thing as a slow year in this space anymore. Um, and and you know, I think. I, I don't know it for sure, but but I, I believe it's possible that um, the the pandemic and the restrictions it's had on uh, y- you know the the enforcement authorities from the DOJ and the SEC that their restrictions on travel uh, it may have allowed them the sort of time they needed to to put the finishing touches on these two documents um, and and it could be the reason that you know they they came out sort of close in time uh, and so you know I, I think. Uh, for what we viewed as a potentially slow year, a lot has happened, and 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 a lot of potentially very meaningful uh, events have taken place, and a, a potentially meaningful guidance has come out. Uh, that you're right, that that we might be looking back on a few years, thinking 2020 was a really big year uh, for practitioners in this space. So let me change, uh, turn to the one of my favorite subjects, the veiled land of the future. And one of the themes that I, I'm hearing from the Department of Justice and the the virtual conferences that they attend are uh, that enforcement will continue. There's no COVID-19 Q2 2020 get out of jail card free. But um, so is, is is that something that you guys believe as well? And are you able to communicate that message to your clients that you really can't take your foot off the pedal? Absolutely. I, I fully believe that. Uh, um, I, I think, you know, the reality with particularly with FCPA cases, is uh, there is, they're often, uh, you know, the, the case comes several years after the fact, after the misconduct. And I, I will say, I, I believe that in, in 2026, uh, when the DOJ may be investigating conduct from, from you know, the, the second quarter of 2020, uh, sort of the context we're in right now uh, will have faded. And, and you won't remember how difficult it was to do anything during this, these few months and, uh, you know, the, the enormous pressure that compliance officers were under. Uh, and so I have every expectation that there, there will be no get-out-of-jail-free cards, there will be no credit given for misconduct that takes place during, during this pandemic. Um, I, I think, I, at least for our clients, I, I, re- I, think, I think they get it. And honestly, I think that has has been part of the reason that we've seen um, our clients, our, our our colleagues in in compliance functions throughout our clients, really under a lot of pressure because their job has been a lot is is more difficult now than it was a few months ago. Um, but they realize they need to get to the same place and have the same results, uh, and that can put a lot of pressure on people. Uh, the other question I wanted to pose to you is: I've been intrigued by. Also, the department's comments on robust enforcement, is it going to put more pressure on compliance officers and compliance programs for another reason, which is the DOJ may need to look uh, more or lean more heavily on self-disclosure now uh, because of COVID-19 and uh, recognizing the decision to self-disclose is perhaps one of the most difficult conversations you and your colleagues would have. But if a company does... Is the DOJ going to start to rely on that more going forward? Well, I, I mean, I think they would they would like to rely on it as much as possible. Uh, um, and I think 
it, it was, it's why they promoted the corporate enforcement policy so much. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's why they included a, a discussion of it in the, in the updated uh, um, resource guide, uh, because, you know, it, it's, it, you save a lot of time and resources from, from the DOJ side to have companies come in and, and self-report. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it, currently the DOJ is, is uh, progressing with the investigations they have going. I think it's, it's naive to think that um, COVID-19 and, and the restrictions on travel and everything else will have no impact on their ability to investigate misconduct, at least, at least in the short term. Um, and so you might be right that they're, they're relying on it more, or they're, they're hoping to rely on it more, um, at least in the short term. For, um, for compliance professionals, I don't know that, that the sort of hope or expectation of the DOJ to rely on that more does have a meaningful difference. I think, as you mentioned, that decision as to whether to self-disclose is perhaps the most difficult one. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, it's difficult during the pandemic. It's difficult without it. Uh, and I don't know that it's, it's going to make a difference. It does, but, but to your point, I mean, we're talking about another pressure point for uh, compliance personnel, uh, another pressure point for, for in-house lawyers. Uh, you know, making these decisions under this, this environment can be very difficult. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been uh, just a ton of fun for me and a fascinating discussion. I look forward to uh, seeing if we can continue the conversation. Uh, me, me, I do as well. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it was fun as always. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at an issue related to the FCPA, Compliance and Ethics. We have two great new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network that I hope you're aware of. The first one is Compliance and Coronavirus, where I try to bring sanity and clarity to the compliance practitioner and the business executive around coronavirus. Also, the Compliance Life features one CCO a month talking about their journey to the CCO chair and beyond in four parts. Uh, this month, that's Ryan Robillet, and has, who has a fascinating journey. Also, if you're a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I have a series on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, where we're looking at Teddy Roosevelt, his life, his presidency, and beyond, and what its messages are for the leaders of today. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it, and it's particularly important for compliance practitioners to uh, take a look at leadership skills. I hope you'll join me again next week for our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.